0: Hello, you're listening to A Little Bit of Largham, a podcast exploring how to find a more balanced, sustainable and mindful approach to living, to support your well-being, the well-being of others and of the planet too. My name is Marla and in today's interview I am talking with Scott Thompson, who works within the sustainability sector, specifically within education. The role of the organisation he's working with is to support sustainability specifically in universities and colleges in Scotland. The company operates from university student level all the way up to UN, so he has so much valuable information and insight into goals surrounding sustainable development right up to government level, specifically discussing how governments should be held more accountable and more responsible for setting tighter regulations and laws as well as what large companies and organisations should be doing to help towards a solution for the climate crisis. He shares some really interesting perspectives and also recognises how, as individuals, we shouldn't feel like we need to tackle everything all on our own. There's so much that companies and governments should be held accountable for, and we can't blame ourselves for the poor systems that may be in place. So before I chat for too long, let's just get straight into the episode. Thank you so much for agreeing no to come on the podcast and chat with me. I really appreciate it. I know that you are working within the sustainability field and you said mainly within education in Scotland. Yes. Um, so I'd love to hear a bit more about, yeah, the work that you do and how you came into working within the sustainability field.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's quite a, it's quite a big question. I suppose how I came to be here um, so I actually went to university and did um, ecology and conservation at University of St Andrews. And whilst I was there, we did have a sustainable development course and module, uh, which I did take. And that was, to be honest, probably the first time I ever really talked about sustainability or heard about it. And um, this was 2015, I graduated. It wasn't that long ago. But even then, sustainability as a term wasn't really that well used. But we, had, we had climate change, we had the whole new ozone layer, we had sort of I know, animal loss, we had human rights loss, we didn't ever sort of link it together under one field. So I studied ecology because I cared about the animals and the wildlife side of it. And then after leaving university, I went to work for a marine charity in East Lothian in Scotland. And yes. um, so I worked there for a couple of years, working sort of wildlife issues, working on public engagement. I started giving talks, talked about the animals, things like that. And so sort of as you sort of grew into it, you, you got to see, you know, it wasn't just the animal issues. You know, there was pollution, there was plastics, there was, you know, human behavior, there was cotton buds. There was all these sort of other things kept getting brought in. All the damage has been done by other people you know, or either around the world or potentially even years ago. And I got a job, um, more or less, as like a low-level environmental consultant for a while, working with businesses. Um, so I did that for a little while it wasn't really for me I'm not really a salesperson so I got the job that I currently have now which is with a group called EAUC um, which formerly was the Environmental Association of Universities and Colleges for Scotland quite a mouthful (laughs) Um, so our role sort of broadly is to support sustainability in universities and colleges in Scotland so we do that in a lot of different ways so my job is communications and networks So we have different networks for all the people who want to talk about energy, all the ones who want to talk about travel or waste or education, things like that. We sort of get all these people together and get the experts and industries and the governments and whoever else we need to get together. And we sort of discuss these issues. And at a higher level, we operate up to the UN and report to the UN political forum. So it's quite a unique position to be in. On one hand, you're working with the UN, then on another day, you're working with day one, fresher students, you know, on sustainability. Wow. Um, quite, a, quite a varied role. Mm. Um, yeah, sort of how I ended up where I am just now. It wasn't really a plan, it just sort of happened. Generally, when we go to a lot of the meetings now and we have a network for students as well, students are really probably the most engaged. Students are the one who probably know about sustainability the most, they've grown up with it. Mm. They sort of are the ones trying to push for change, and they're the ones you know, at the Extinction Rebellion rallies, they're the ones pushing for the changes and sort of mm. actually driving things on. Um, I mean, universities and colleges typically are quite good, particularly in Scotland. Mm. But, you know, often there's the case of, you know, this is just how we do things. Whereas yeah. you have students come in each year and go, why? why are you doing this? <laughs> mm. And you, know, you have that every year. You have you know 5,000 people going, why are you doing that? And mm. I think, you know, that does, that does prompt change. And I think... In general, though, the students are very aware. Um, I think probably much more so than when I was at university. I think it's you know, it's much more in the news, and I think people are just a bit more conscious of it. I mean, I didn't really know much about, for example, sustainable development goals. At university, mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was brought up a little bit, but it wasn't like a big thing. I would never have connected to say gender equality to sustainability. that is is an issue, that's part of sustainability it's like poverty, gender equality these are all, these all come under sustainability but when I was learning it was more of a climate change, save the animals types I didn't Mm. really equate the two together
0: Yeah for sure that was something I was going to ask you more about actually was whether there is this kind of push towards recognising the intersectionality of all these things so it's great to sound like the students you're speaking with are already bridging those gaps between a combination of issues and how they're all connected and that actually to come to a solution, we need to consider all of these different aspects that are so interlinked.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because one of the things we probably struggle with the most as an organisation, as a sector, is the collaboration. It's the working with other people. You know, Typically, any problem that someone has in sustainability, someone else has got it or
0: mm-hmm. someone else has
1: solved it. I think some about students are just much better at actually sharing these ideas. Mm-hmm. I think there's also just a they don't have the sort of the fear of being wrong. People just say, Why don't we do this whereas if you're at a you know a board meeting at a university or a college, maybe you're like, oh, I'm not sure I want to say that or it's too controversial or too expensive or
0: mm-hmm. something
1: like that. But I think yeah, students definitely are much more aware intersectionality is a big thing at the minute there's a big push on it um Particularly, you know, we had kind of last year. There's a lot of issues, typically surrounding Trump and women's rights, um, or the year before it was, and then this year, obviously, there's a lot of issues around Black Lives Matter, and these sort of keep raising these issues to the forefront, and it keeps people keep managing to connect the dots and sort of working out this is all sustainability, this is all equality. Um, I think students are really good at that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And a quote that I've been seeing around a lot at the moment is kind of how there can be no climate justice without social justice. And I think that's such an important message to be brought to the forefront, um, for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is a that is a key point, you know.
0: Something else that you had mentioned um, when we've just been chatting before this conversation is that you've noticed kind of gaps within the education surrounding sustainability. For example, jobs being created that then... People aren't being kind of given the skills to then go into. Um, do you have any kind of specific examples about this you might like to talk about?
1: So this came about as one of the networks that I run is education for sustainable development, and so I work with the academics on sort of the curriculum side of things. And I was trying to plan a conference and I was trying to get them to come along and talk about this and what they thought the gaps were. And I just happened to be talking to a friend who's a consultant for an energy company. And he works in hydrogen power, which is quite a big thing in parts of Scotland, particularly in the sort of Aberdeen region and a few in the central belt. Um, so what you do is basically you get water or methane, you run electricity through it, and it splits basically the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then hydrogen can then be used to power things. And it's, So it's a really good thing to do. For example, if you have renewable energy, you can use the energy from the wind turbines to split the water, and if you're not going to use that energy there and then, you can store it as hydrogen. Right. Whereas typically wind power just you, you either use it then and then, or it just goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one thing he said is, you know, what actually there's nobody in Scotland currently teaching students about hydrogen power. You can't you can't do a course, you can't do sort of any course on it in Scotland. I thought that was very bizarre because it's it's in the Scottish government's strategy it's a big thing it's on the front page they're going to have hydrogen power Scotland has really good targets for climate and so it will be a big big part of it but we're not teaching people to do it but simultaneously you know we're still teaching oil and gas geology type courses about oils and gases and where to find them and how to drill them and things like that so on one hand we're not teaching what we are planning for the future and what we are expecting to be the future but we are still teaching the things that we know are not going to be existing. But even for relatively mainstream things, so for example, electric cars, there are still places in Scotland who are running sort of mechanics, like car mechanic classes, but they're not telling students or teaching them on electric cars. And again, and currently they're planning on having a ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2030. So that's 10 years. You know, like say your working life is you know twenty one to sixty five so the next ten years maybe you'll be fine, but after that, what are you going to do you're going to have to retrain is your employer going to retrain you? like where are you going to get these skills? because even now, electric cars are the biggest selling cars in the u k you think well this is it's not this isn't predicting the future. this is happening now
0: yeah, for sure, and um, now that you've bought up um electric cars actually i've noticed that on your platform you've spoken quite a bit about transport and kind of what could be a solution for sustainable travel. And specifically with electric cars, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it because something that I've been looking into a bit recently is a lot to do with like cobalt mining for the batteries within electric cars and how that in itself can be quite environmentally damaging. So yeah, I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have surrounding electric cars and whether that could be a sustainable solution for the future.
1: Yeah, definitely, it's a contested point. So you have people sort of very much on the side of, you know, active travel, cycling, walking, who absolutely won't sort of be involved in electric cars and really are against it. And you have other people saying, you know, this is the future, this is the way it has to go. Um, it is very difficult. I think ultimately we're not going to get rid of cars in a long time. You know, we'll have cars for a very, very long time to come. And so I think electric cars are a useful step in that sense. Mm. I think the technology does have to get better. I think I think it is getting better, but I agree. The rare earth metals and the mining and things like that, that is an issue. I mean, will there be enough, for example, or what do we do with it? Um, mm. One thing that they're currently doing with electric cars is actually once they reach the end of life, they're taking the batteries out of them, because even a electric car battery, at the end of its life, it's still going to run at about 90% capacity. So it's actually, in in a car, that's quite a lot to lose 10% because you're driving, and if you get stuck 10% of the way there, that's no good. But Mm. what they're doing with it is actually putting it into houses, and they're using the battery as a renewable energy store in the same way that you could with hydrogen on a larger scale. But they're putting these sort of car batteries in houses that have solar panels and are using battery to store that energy which then does prolong the life of that battery significantly. And it then means that that potentially excess waste of energy that you'd get from solar panels can then be stored and then be used. And so you have that as an additional carbon saving on the life of that battery. That's quite an awkward question. Yeah. yeah. One of the big problems people object to is the car tires and the microplastics. Because uh, currently car tires are the biggest source of microplastic in Europe. Just with the wear on the road, it just erodes the tire. And with electric cars, they tend to say the wear is higher. It's one of these things, whether it's true or not, it's hard to say. I mean, it's all things being equal, no, it's not true. It's absolutely, It should actually be equal with a petrol car. The problem is that electric cars have a higher rate of acceleration because there's no gears. And so when you put the accelerator down, you speed off faster, which then erodes the tyre faster. And So if people don't adapt their driving styles, which typically they don't, Yes, you do wear your tires faster, which then has a higher microplastic factor as well. Mm. So it's yeah, it's a very, very difficult issue. I think, you know, for example, in the UK, we definitely have to improve our public transport system because that that is a major factor. People drive but simply because there's no other option. Whereas I went to Amsterdam last summer and that was amazing. You didn't need a car at all. I went to Paris one time and it was a similar story, uh, I believe, Germany has a thing for commuters, so I think it's one euro a month they pay for this uh, metro or the subway. Wow. You know, I mean, imagine, I mean, in the UK, I mean, you know, my manager takes the train to work, and I think, obviously, before lockdown, I think he was paying something like £18 pounds per day. You think that's, you could get an entire year of travel in Berlin, what you're paying in one day. You know, something's not adding up here. Like, you can't, we can't encourage public transport so much, but then not make it good enough to use
0: yeah it's crazy like because I grew up in Wales um, in quite a rural part of Wales and just seeing as well like the lack of ability to be able to connect different towns within the valleys it's just there's still so much work to be done even on that scale but yeah going back to what you were saying about kind of the complexities with the issue around electric cars being kind of pushed as the more sustainable option I think it really does come back to this idea of constantly reevaluating and questioning our systems and not searching for this one solution fix that's going to be this perfect model and maybe realizing that we're going to constantly have to be reevaluating readapting these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's you have to look at it as a stepping stone. You know, you have to say like okay, compared to petrocar is that an improvement? I think Okay, yes, it is. Therefore, it's, it's worthwhile doing. You know, is it flawless? No. You know, could it be improved? Yeah, it could. But it's you know, one of these things that if people don't really do it, you don't get that improvement happening. People need to buy them and have them. And that will then inspire the companies who make them to actually think, okay, you know what, we need to make better systems. I really think that a lot of this needs to come from the government and the legislation aspect of it. I think if you keep leaving things optional, people won't do it. Um it's like, you know, it's like any other issue, for example, you take something like, you know, Starbucks and Google, for example, not paying tax, because it's not illegal. You know, it's like, well, you've made that optional, you've, you've let that door open, so they're not going to do it. So, you know, it's the same with, you know, technology and things like that. If you're not going to stop it, people will just carry on doing it because, you know, it's easier or it makes more money or whatever reason, whatever reason of convenience they have, they'll carry on doing it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and like you were saying with uh, your friend who's paying for train travel yep. and it comes down to that thing as well. If, if you're not in a position where you can then or even have a sustainable option to choose from, you have to go for the one that is less environmentally friendly because there's just not another feasible option in place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I actually think the ban of selling petrol and diesel cars in the UK is actually a really good step. Um, it's a really big step forward, and it's, it's something that happened elsewhere in the world as well. And a lot of car manufacturers are saying, we're not going to make petrol cars anymore. And actually, Honda recently dropped out of Formula One racing, which uses hybrid engines, because they said, actually, there's no future in hybrids either. So we're not going to even attempt to develop a world-class hybrid engine, because we don't believe that's the future. So, you know, it's, it's good that people are doing this. And then on the sort of the more extreme end of the scale, you have the government of china announced they want to be carbon neutral by 2060 that is a massive massive step to legislate for which they're doing i mean that that single step of them becoming carbon neutral by 2060 puts the entire world's climate targets back on track all of which were behind and so it's a huge huge step and ultimately if they manage it it will be amazing
0: and with regards to that i wanted to ask do you Feel hopeful surrounding the targets currently in place because um, I know there's there's quite a lot of kind of conversation around this and whether the current targets are going to be enough, whether we're going to meet these targets. Um, I'd be really interested to hear, yeah, your thoughts surrounding this and whether you're hopeful about meeting these targets and helping to keep carbon emissions down as much as possible.
1: Yeah, um, I'm hopeful on some targets i would say (laughs) um so scotland as a whole where i am is very good at it and we're doing really well we've got a lot of wind power a lot of renewables um, and that is that's a big plus that's pretty much how we're reaching our targets and a lot of that is down to the geography i think we've got something like two-thirds of all the potential wave power in europe is off the coast of scotland so Again, Scotland has that ability, you know, it's a relatively small country, with a relatively low population, so sort of proportionally, the amount of energy that we can create renewably is much higher than our population, and so our targets look a little bit easier. Not to say they aren't still hard, and there'll still be a lot of work, um, but I think they are probably more possible. Sort of on a UK level, you'd have to say people are dragging their feet a little bit more, and um, I Think we were sort of waiting to see what would happen with COP26, the UN the sort of global climate conference that was meant to happen uh, this year. It's been and delayed until
0: postponed. Yeah, for a whole year.
1: Yeah, I mean, COP26, I think, is pretty much what highlights the inequality in our targets. So I've spoken to quite a few people who were at the previous ones, and it's not the sort of democratic, nice process you'd think it is. It's a bit of a mess. Um, like So, for example, if you're a very small country, if you're you know, Mauritius, say, you're massively in danger of sea level rise, but you probably also don't have as many delegates. You might only have one or two people in your group that go to COP, whereas the US might send 100 people or 50 people. And then during a COP negotiation, you'll have five, six, seven votes happening simultaneously at the same time. And if you've only got one or two people, you can't vote in all these issues. So if one debate is on sea level rise, one's on carbon emissions, one's on, I don't know, future transport, one's on global climate targets, you then, as a small country, you're actually more disadvantaged because you don't have a voice in some of these debates. So it's not, I think it's a bit of a shame, the way COP operates in that sense. Yeah, it's kind of unfair, but it's not a lot you can do about it. Um, On the other hand, as, as we mentioned about China, we were talking about this recently at work, and someone said, actually you know what china is probably the most likely people to actually achieve this target because china is basically run by the state they have the state government they don't have elections you know they don't have the greatest human rights record by any means but china they don't have to essentially pander to what people want whereas in the uk for example you know every government is looking okay next four years what do we do how do we keep people on side what do we do Um, you know we want to win the election We want to win the votes so that's sort of You can't be as long-term whereas if you know that you're in power for life but you know undemocratic undemocratic as that might be you do have that ability to plan on a much longer scale i don't think it's the best system by any means but i think the general consensus is that china will actually do this and if they do it does tend to bring other targets back on track i think whilst carbon targets are great and absolutely you know support them i think what we are missing and consistently failing on is biodiversity targets I think we've failed, I think WWF said we failed on all of them. Um, So that's oceans, that's land, that's deforestation, that's everything. And so I think it's a very difficult thing because with a carbon target, you can say, okay, the carbon level is 482 parts per million. With biodiversity, you can't really quantify it. You can't monetize it in the same way. I think it's a much, much, much more ignored issue. People don't really care about it as much. I think that is a big problem.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's such, such a sad thing. Um, and I think it was a statistic I saw a while ago, and I might be completely wrong in this, but something that like 98%, something as high as that of the biodiversity of this planet is like 98% is humans and industrialized farm animals. And the other 2% is what is actually natural wildlife.
1: Yeah, that could well be true. Yeah. It's really sad.
0: Do you have any hope with that that it will become something that is more cared about?
1: Um I think you can see it happening in sort of small pockets. Mm. You can see I think when it's beneficial to people, they will try and do it. So for example, you know, if it's farming and pollination, people think, Okay, let's let's do more to help the honeybees, for example. Because they're, you know, really useful for pollinating, they're worth X number of billion pounds or dollars mm. and same as some of the fisheries and they're gonna say okay we can fish in this way and that'll make us money or not lose us money I think going back again to the previous point like we have our legislation we have laws but they're not always enforced and obeyed and we saw during the sort of the height of the Covid pandemic you know China sent its fishing fleet into the Galapagos Islands and fished all that area you know, that is illegal is anyone going to prosecute China for that? Like, I highly doubt it. You know, I think then ultimately, like, we have to have laws that are good and strong, which I think we don't. But I think even if we do have them, we actually have to enforce them. It's not no point just having it and then, oh, they're too powerful to prosecute. We'll just let them go. And we've seen in the US, for example, they've actually rolled back quite a lot of environmental laws, and partly just through the Trump government, but also partly due to COVID, they actually lifted a lot of the environmental pollution rules as well. Which I think they, they're arguing it's for industrial productivity. But realistically, more air pollution in a pandemic that affects people's lungs is not a use, not a good thing to do, you know. And there's this strong suspicion that they might forget to reenact these laws and just sort of let that go and we'll be stuck with these higher air pollution levels.
0: So awful and when like the USA is such a massive country it has such an impact just for the sheer number of people and the constant economic growth which is seen to be the biggest priority almost all the time and i think that idea of constant economic growth how can that be sustainable on a planet with finite resources
1: yeah absolutely that's supposed to be a question isn't it how do you can yeah. you continue that is it possible if it isn't possible like when does it end you know Is it just a case of, you know, the people in government thinking, okay, as long as I'm in government and we still have resources, it's fine. It'll be the next government's problem. Or they just keep passing it along. Are they actually going to tackle it? Is it, do they not sort of see it as their responsibility because they know there'll be another government and they can clean it up?
0: Yeah, it comes back to that lack of forward thinking. Like I remember within Wales in Swansea, there was a big push for a tidal lagoon. Um, which would be a great way to source renewable energy that could power a large percentage of the population of Wales. And it then got completely dropped after it had been being worked on for a fair few years. Things got changed with the amount of money the government were prepared to put into it. And then they just couldn't fund it anymore. And it's such a sad thing to see like that was something that was going to try and be a push in a positive direction. And because it's not backed enough by the government, it can't go forwards.
1: Yeah, it's a shame, because particularly as Wales actually has a lot of good environmental things going on. Um, I think in terms of recycling, I think they're actually second in the world, with the highest recycling rate currently. Um, so there's a lot of great things going on in Wales. And yeah, it is a shame the government didn't back that.
0: Yeah, definitely. The government does need to be held more accountable and be more responsible. Yeah, hopefully... That will be something that changes.
1: Um, yeah, but that is, that is actually quite a slow thing to change because I did an internship for about 10 weeks with the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, SEPA. Okay. Previous to me being there, basically, they if they thought someone was breaking the law, they had to have their legal team, they had to go to court, they had to go through a hugely long process. So typically, they didn't prosecute people unless they absolutely had to because it was such a long, expensive process. And then at that point, they got fixed penalty notices and the ability to give out fines themselves. Um, I remember what the value is. It's you know several hundred to several thousand pounds. It's not, again, huge, but it is enough that actually it's a bit of a deterrent. You know, If you're a farmer and you're not that bothered what your animals are doing and someone comes and says, okay, that's 10,000 pounds, you're like, oh, that is a bit of a deterrent. And then simultaneously, it was 2016, 2017 time, we had the Environmental Protection Agency for the UK actually prosecute Thames Water. They're a water company in England and they were basically discharging sewage into the River Thames untreated because it was cheaper for them to pay the fine every year for doing that than it was to actually clean it and do it properly. And eventually, the Environmental Protection Agency had enough and I think they fined them £32 million. It was the highest ever environmental fine in UK history. So there are... I mean, there are like progress signs, but again, in Thames and Waters' case, that was several years they'd done that for. That wasn't, okay, you've messed up, here's a fine. And in Scotland, we have a sort of a chemical refinery plant called Moss Moran, it's in mm-hmm. Fife, and it's in trouble almost every week for breaching uh, pollution regulations. There's always people inspecting it and giving it warnings. And yeah, it just doesn't ever seem to actually get shut down or improved. It just keeps getting warned consistently again and again.
0: There's no incentive there for that company to make a change because they're just continuously getting warnings. It's yeah, not a threat to their business to keep doing it. And if if they don't actually care enough, then that company needs a different incentive and a government could easily place that incentive there.
1: Yeah. And again, they've actually left the law too wide. There's too many loopholes they can get around. For example, that plant in particular, it's I think it's exxon and shell maybe that run it it's jointly run and so every time there's a pollution breach you know one company goes oh it was us and then the next time it happens the other one goes oh actually, it was us and so legally that is a different incident that's a different company doing that mm. so again that law should have never really existed to be that way
0: i guess within the meantime while we're hoping that the government are going to get tighter with their regulations I guess it comes to finding that balance between how can we as consumers or individuals that form part of a community feel like we can put pressure on these companies to make a difference? Because it can feel so overwhelming to to know how you can actually help make those changes.
1: I do agree. I think it is, like some days more than others, I think it is very hard to actually do that. You know, sometimes you think, what is the point? Like, why? you you're standing in a supermarket and you're like, you know, I don't actually know which is the lowest carbon footprint thing here to buy. And like, do I buy this one? Do I buy this one? You know, this one comes in plastic, but this one doesn't. What do I do? And it's hard. And I think, you know, there is a lot of, a lot of complaining about companies and people that aren't doing things right, but typically it doesn't really affect them. And um, it's a lot, of, you know, it's a lot of talk about investments and who you give money to and things, but ultimately i think certainly the bigger the company the sort of the more they stack the odds against you you know the more it's very difficult i don't think amazon are going to change because people keep complaining you know like they made sort of small changes now that you can get less packaging with your products but then why again why is that an option why is reduced packaging something we have to ask for they're almost sort of guilting you and turning the question around it's not that i should be asking for this this you should be doing it it never seems to quite work like that they don't sort of the bigger the companies they just don't seem to care or they don't have the ability or the willingness to actually make those changes. And again, they need someone to say this is not acceptable. Mm. But I think again, the bigger the company, the more influence they then have on the governments and on the people in power. You know, that's why again Amazon don't pay any tax because you know what they're funding, they're donating to campaigns, they're lobbying. They're saying, okay, oh, actually, we're actually a huge employer. If you know, if you tax us, we're going to lose so many jobs and that's going to be really unpopular for you and your election and your constituents. They're trying to sort of rig the system against you in that way.
0: It's, it's so frustrating. And yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's like these big companies who their actions could have such a positive impact if they chose to make better choices. Because if they made those options available, people would choose them. But yeah, like you were saying, why does it have to be an option? Why isn't it just the general consensus that that's just how you get it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in that case, I can't even see what the benefit is for them. Like why, you know, surely it must be cheaper to do it this way. Like, I can't can't see how it can be a negative. I can't see why they're so reluctant to do these things. Mm. Yeah, I think that is absolutely the frustration of, you know, this seems so obvious to everyone else, but you know, you're not doing it and
0: especially when they're the ones in the position where they can do it um yeah because it can make you as an individual feel out of control sometimes i guess from being able to make the better choice that you want to make
1: yeah they're sort of got so much ownership and so much power that it's almost like what can i do you've you know it's like the big investment companies or the big governments or sort of the larger any group becomes it's like okay you know what you've got such a stake in absolutely everything you know, you're controlling so much. It just seems like, what do we do? And I think ultimately it's, you know, what you have to try try your best by all means. Just, you know, you have to just do what you think is right. And sometimes you won't be right. You know, sometimes sometimes no one's actually worked it out. You know, sometimes you're going to buy something and you're going to wonder like, is that the right thing? And I've asked people that I work with and experts and things and they go, actually, you know what? I have no idea what the carbon footprint difference between buying that. This thing and that thing actually is. So you think, well, I worried about that for like an hour, or several hours, or days, or weeks, or whatever. And then I've spoken to an expert, and they go, "Actually, you know what? I don't know either." Yeah. You think, well, if the experts don't know. Like, why am I feeling so guilty about it?
0: Mm, yeah, because I mean, it becomes so complicated. Like, say, for example, if you're buying fruit and veg that is local, but it's out of season that might have a higher carbon footprint than buying something that's seasonal that's been imported from somewhere else so someone could genuinely think like well i'm buying something local that's a positive thing and it becomes so complicated because the information maybe just isn't as readily available or because there are so many choices rather than just the more sustainable logical option being the only option we're bombarded with all these choices, multiples of them being really not at all sustainable. And then it's just almost like a lottery of trying to pick which one is the most sustainable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is right. I mean, I had a post on this recently. I mean, food miles typically actually is a very, very small part of the overall food carbon footprint. Most of it is in the production. But then... You know, you don't always know that. You don't know which one is best when you stand in the supermarket or the shop and you go, Okay, you know, we've got this product here which is local, then this one is abroad, but this one's local but in plastic. Is that worse than the one that's abroad? Like where do we draw the line? I don't know. Like, was it flown in? Was it by boat? Was it by lorry? You know, all these things affect it. What do we do? And yeah, you know, always frustrates me, like our local shop is Tesco and for example sell broccoli side by side one unpackaged and one wrapped i always think why have you done that what is the point in selling two things for the same price one wrapped one not like think again why why have you chosen that option why don't you just say no here it is unwrapped You know, i think with fruit and veg in particular i understand some of it the wrapping does prolong the life like cucumber they say it adds something like eight days to the life of it other products, you think you know what that is growing outdoors in a field for four months. Like, why did it need plastic for the last four miles?
0: Yeah, exactly. And like bananas, for example, they have their own skin. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So, like, why why they have their own packaging? So, why do you need to coat some of them in plastic as well? It's just crazy.
1: It is. It's ridiculous.
0: Well, whilst we are on the kind of conversation of food i mean it's kind of food it's more drink related um but you had a recent post discussing the kind of recent big issue with oatly and the idea of them selling their soul and i thought you had a really interesting perspective on this yeah.
1: um so, yeah just a, a sort of quick summary on the issue in case people didn't know it um so oatly make oat milk and They're one of the biggest and one of the most sustainable And they sold, I think 7% actually turned out to be of their stake to a a private equity group called Blackstone, who are the biggest uh, private equity investor in the world. It's about 500 billion they have in assets, so it's huge. So Blackstone previously got in trouble because essentially they were buying mortgage debt off people and then either evicting people from those homes or essentially renting the homes back to them, which was, again, actually not illegal, bizarrely, but you know, not very nice. And then there was a lot of allegations about them having a role in deforestation in the Amazon, which actually turns out to not, actually not quite be true. It's actually a really complicated story. Actually, I was reading the report on this earlier. It's massively complicated as to what their role actually is. It's, it's fairly trivial, to be honest, but it's more the fact that they're helping to build a port or one of the companies they own a share in is building a port in the Amazon. And that port then means that farmers can transport their goods more easily which in theory means that farmers are more likely to cut down the forest to grow more products because they're making a higher profit because they now have this easier transport route. So yeah that's a very quick summary there there's a huge amount to on the side of it and um, a lot of it's not true what you hear actually the actual reports are quite ambiguous even WWF and Greenpeace aren't too opposed to them. People are already a little bit suspicious about Oatly I think because they recently sold part of their company to the chinese government as well so people were like "Mm, that was a bit weird and now blackstone is majority owned by someone who's a trump supporter so now people are thinking okay you've sort of got links to the chinese you've sort of got links to trump kind of not trusting you anymore yeah it's a really complicated story i think ultimately you have to wonder is it the same people doing the same job to the same standards If that's the case, then I don't think there's too much of an issue. I think if if Oatly themselves are still as sustainable as they ever were, then the actual impact has not changed. I think the really important point here is that Oatly could have made this money. I think it was about 10%-ish, which is a couple of hundred million pounds. Um, They've not actually released the final figure. But say, say it's 200 million, just for argument's sake. That's actually... A relatively small amount of money for Oakley. They could have got that money elsewhere, they could have crowd it, they could have got other investors, but they deliberately chose Blackstone. I think partly, again, because they're a massive organization. The same way that the Chinese government allows them to sell in China, being part of Blackstone is probably going to open up new markets for them as well. For Blackstone, they have a poor reputation mainly from the housing issues, but then if you look back at what they've actually been doing over the last few years, it's actually okay. They started moving a lot more into healthcare, a lot more into research. I mean, Oatley is a very, very small part of their portfolio. I think it's 0.03% or something. It's, it's trivial compared to what they own. But Blackstone own so many other things. I a bit like what we said earlier, the bigger the company, the more they stack the odds against you. So I think in my post, I said, until 2016, sorry, Blackstone owned, for example, McVitie's and Jacobs, who pretty much make all the biscuits in Europe. They own a lot of the hotels, they own a bit of Facebook, and thus they own WhatsApp, Instagram. And they own so many different things. I mean, even if you object to Blackstone, like you have to realize that you're already involved. You're already partly supporting what they do. And that, again, they've just rigged that so that you don't have an option. I think that's that's really difficult. And what you have to think is, okay, well, they have done this to disrupt the market. So they've... Even if you don't like Blackstone, I think what you have to think is, what would Blackstone have done with that two hundred million pounds if they didn't give it to Oakley? Because that money could have gone to someone much worse. And if you're if you work for Blackstone, for example, and you're sitting there thinking, okay, we're the world's biggest private equity investment group, you know, and we have a choice: do we invest in people who are sustainable and ethical, or do we invest in people who aren't? You know, if you're investing in people who are you know, actively deforesting or illegal fishing or anything like that, yeah, you're absolutely, you deserve that criticism. But if you're choosing to invest in someone more sustainable, do you still deserve that criticism? Like, should we criticize them regardless of what they do? Or should we say, actually, you've done some poor things in the past, but maybe this is a step in the right direction? Mm. I think it's a gamble for Oakley, definitely. I mean, they have done this deliberately. They have consciously chosen this investor as an attempt to disrupt and to take money away from worse investments. So it's, you know, it is a really unusual step that no one's really done before. And I think it's, yeah, it's impossible to know really what that money would have done had they not taken it. But I think if it's gone to someone worse, then as a net result, we're slightly better off. It's a really complicated issue because Blackstone are worth over 500 billion. It's next to impossible to actually untangle the web of what they own, what they're responsible for, because they own so much of everything.
0: You've made so many great points there and like a really interesting shift of perspective as well. Well,
1: already actually owned by, I think, three or four other investment companies. And so, you know, obviously they know much more about this deal than anyone else does. They know why they've done this. And you have to think as well if they've got other investors who've all got around this table and thought, actually, yeah, this is a good idea. You know, there it's not just the two people who own Oatly going. Here's a here's a thought. Let's do this. Mm. You know, there's other people involved as well. And you sort of think the more people involved, that like, there must be a reason behind this. Um, and again, as you say, if you're going kind to of boycott Oakley, why are you doing that? I mean, is that the most sustainable zero point zero three part of all of Blackstone? A lot of the debate on social media, they kind of drag in so many different facets of this. So it's not just the It's Blackstone. It's okay. Also, several years ago, they sold to China. And also, someone involved in Blackstone supports Trump. And also, there's an allegation of deforestation. That deforestation argument is not quite true. It's definitely out of context. I've looked into it quite a lot. Um, But there's so many, like, semi-facts going about. If you just sort of pile them all together, you're like, oh, that's not good at all. None of these other problems. Or Blackstone have ever gotten any trouble for. And particularly the bit in the Amazon, Brazilian government took responsibility and there's actually been no legal issues. There's been no investigations. There's been no the ones even raised an issue. When you look at Blackstone as well, you can actually see that whilst it is absolutely true and that the guy at the top does support Trump, that donate to his campaign. Also the I think it was the second in command donated to Biden's campaign. So you're like, well, this is actually much more complicated than Blackstone or a Trump company. You know, it's yeah, for sure. so many more facets to this. And I would trust that Oakley are a very sustainable ethical company before this happened. I think they will still continue that. They'll still continue what their, they do, their own work. And I think, obviously, they know more about this deal than anyone else does. They must have a good reason for doing it. And I think they are doing it with a deliberate attempt to disrupt and to take money away from something worse. That is another factor as well. That ownership does not equal actually what they do. But depending on how you invest it doesn't actually mean you have any controlling stake. And if, for example, a private company makes other oat milk, but then they also invest in you know, weapons, or they also invest in something else, or their carbon footprint is really high. Um, I think one of the alternatives is um, Alpro, who I think is owned, I think Alpro or owned by Danone, who then have a massive stake in the dairy industry. I think, okay, that's not great either because you're actually doing a lot of damage through that. So mm-hmm. that's one alternative that could also be seen to have a negative impact. And then then it just becomes a bit of a spire where you're like, okay, I can't trust anyone yeah. because everyone must somewhere down the line have something negative. And it's like, where do you draw the line as to how much evil are you going to accept? How much guilt are you going to take for this when it's not your fault and your responsibility?
0: Yeah, and that's definitely the point that I would love to kind of go on to next is you shared a post recently which is just saying this is not your fault you don't have to fix everything you're doing fine um and I'd love you to talk a little bit more about yeah how it's important that as individuals we don't take all of the responsibility onto ourselves and feel like we have to fix everything
1: yeah this actually came about because of something again someone at work was saying they wanted to have a or a webinar on mental health particularly in light of um, coronavirus and lockdown and all the sort of anxiety social isolation events that that brings and so I was looking into this a little bit and I found someone on Twitter and she was saying she had basically climate anxiety which is when obviously you worry about the impacts you're making on the climate work out what to do to have the lowest impact she could and more or less as we were talking about you know she's a sort of Spiraled into this, you know, which I don't know what to buy. I don't know who the owners are But you know what they're gonna do with the money if I give them this money What will they do what will they not do and in the end she ended up being suicidal Ultimately, she didn't kill herself which was great and she got better and people helped her but that is awful that Someone was so like conflicted that they felt the lowest the best thing they could do to reduce their impact on the world was to kill themselves. and that is terrible that should never be a thing people who are caring and who are who are thinking in this way almost by definition are not the ones who are doing the damage you know people who are thinking about this so much that they're that worried are the ones who are doing everything they can to make it better it's hard sometimes to separate you know your sort of role and your guilt from the bigger issue i think it's it's very very difficult i do sometimes struggle with myself i don't think we should feel this much blame i think actually sometimes quite angry about it because you know what our governments and our companies and our people should never be allowing these things to happen. Our actual governments, our big organizations, the UN, all these groups have the power and influence to stop these things, to create the laws, to shut people down, to prosecute. Probably my issue, which I've, come, I've said a few times, you know, it's about actually having good laws that we enforce. And I that's not the fault of the individual, that there's a failure in a law somewhere else or in even a different country that allows someone to Exploit. We can only try our best. Sometimes it's just worth remembering that it's not up to each individual to solve the climate crisis. I work with so many people, so many experts in energy or in waste or in travel or something else like that. I think, okay, these people are really good. These people are really clever. Like, if anyone is going to solve this, it is these people. Like, I do trust them and do think they can do it. I think the guilt is just more paralyzing and scary. I don't think it's the way that any individual should be feeling it's not our fault i don't think
0: i've definitely felt this of feeling like i am angry at myself for not making a more sustainable choice even if there wasn't one available but maybe it's having that recognition that it's like you're not failing yourself the system that you're living in is failing you at the moment and all we can do is try and do the best that we can in the situation we are in
1: absolutely and there's so many large groups that are having these conversations with the government you know there's you know friends of the earth and similar pressure groups who are doing these things you can support them you can follow them see what they're doing or get involved i think things like that for example are actually really good things for people's mental health just to be around other people who are dealing the same way but actually taking a positive action about it there's that quote you see quite often we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly we need millions of people doing it imperfectly
0: yes i love that
1: quote yeah Yeah. something like that and there's a lot of other quotes you see kicking about i totally agree with those quotes but then sometimes you get on social media and like there's countless arguments i've seen on twitter and on instagram of like vegans and non-vegans people arguing over who's having the biggest impact what are they doing why are they doing this or you know someone's saying oh you're a vegan but actually you eat an avocado and the carbon footprint is this high and that's not right and you think Mm. again this is not constructive you know like this is a thread of 10 sustainability people competing as to who is the most sustainable and which you know by all means try try absolutely and be sustainable but don't be abusive to someone else who you disagree with because you know they're less good vegan than you or they're not a vegan or they're a vegan, but they have a dog who eats meat or, you know, it's like really silly arguments. I think this is not, this is not helping.
0: Um, No, exactly. Like we should be supporting each other because we're all in different situations. We're all in different stages of uncovering and learning and who are we to judge where someone else is at if their intention is to improve, you know?
1: Yeah. But I think ultimately as well, I mean, even the people that do get a lot of the blame for climate issues, so, like BP, for example, common common target. <laughs> I was doing a thing at, um, recently at work on it's actually on divestment, so not investing in fossil fuels. And at the time, I think it's a couple of years back. BP, I think, were the twenty-first biggest oil company in the world. And since then, I think this year they sold all their petrochemical side, all their sort of plastic manufacturing side, and got out of that as well. You think, okay, you guys are taking a huge hit for this. Actually, if, when you go down to the carbon footprint, Perabala. Per barrel of oil sorry BP are actually one of the better ones but we're not complaining about Saudi Aramco we're not complaining about Nico. these are the two biggest oil companies in the world yet I reckon only a handful of people would ever actually heard of them mm-hmm. it's like well what are we doing here you know we are you know, absolutely BP had a role not saying they were flawless at all but there's the Saudi company for example I think they own almost a 100 times more than BP does in terms of oil and gas. You think, why are we not, why is no one doing anything about that? You know, is that a failure, again, of governance? If our governments weren't so sort of scared about oil markets and the oil prices and the impacts on the stock market, would we be in this situation? The Formula One race at the weekend and Saudi Aramco, the biggest oil company or second biggest oil company in the world, are sponsoring that. That's just allowed, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, BP had talks with the government about, um, I think it was the climate conference and sponsoring that COP26. And there has been a history in the past of energy companies sponsoring it, and they were absolutely slaughtered on social media for this. I mm-hmm. think, okay, you're much much smaller than this other company, and we, everyone's like, oh, they're great, you know, they're, and, you know, they're a supporter of sport and like bringing in money and investment. I mm-hmm. think actually, you know what, you guys are terrible, but because you're involved in a sport. Everyone loves you, whereas if you weren't, we hate you. You know, that's not, that's not a rational view, is it? You can't mm-hmm. say, okay, you, you are really supportive of people driving fast around a the track. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we're going to let go of some of your environmental issues because of that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, not, yeah. that's not fair. No, and, and also, really, those companies should have a part in those conferences, really, because they're the ones that need to change their practices,
1: But yeah, BP and the other company involved are both saying how much they're investing in renewables and what they're doing. Mm. BP, it's a really tricky one, I think, because they do have a history in the past of misleading people with their marketing. That has happened, for sure. But Mm. at the same time, they're doing a lot of work in places like Aberdeen, which is historically a really oil-centric region and still is. But they're trying to sort of move away from that into renewables. On one hand, they've done terrible things in the past. And you know they are. It does. They are making attempts. Or it does look like they're making attempts to improve. And at what point do you stop calling it greenwashing and just say actually they're they are trying to improve? Yeah. But yeah, I think you're actually right with the sort of the energy companies' role and sort of congresses and governments and things. Absolutely, they are going to be the ones who are having to do so much of this. So they do have to be informed. They do have to know. I think that can seem conflicting. I think mm. it can seem strange to be like, okay, we're trying to reduce energy but we're going to ask an energy company to help us but i think it does have to be done in partnership and i think the sort of the very the sort of aspects of boycotting and alienating and totally distancing ourselves from various companies doesn't actually help that because you know if you're not going to involve them they're still going to do what they do
0: yeah well i just have one final question for you which is basically links back to my podcast being called a little bit of larkham, which is all about finding a sense of balance and kind of a little bit and not too much and that point in between. Um, so I'm just wondering what it is for you within your life or a habit that you have or something even this week that you have done that has yeah helped you find a bit of balance in amongst all of this complexity that we live in.
1: So I think I tend to do things outside to do with wildlife and nature again that's sort of my background and my kind of escape as it were and um, so there's a lot of you know it depends usually on the weather because we live in Scotland and going outside is not always the easiest thing to do and um, I suppose typically on a, a normal day and um, I actually have a fish tank I've just got new fish for it and so sometimes it's just really nice just to sit and watch the fish and just to not worry so much Is it's really calming for some reason watching colorful fish swim about in a circle. Almost, it's it's a yeah, it's a weird phenomenon, but feeling a calmness when you're surrounded by other living things. Mm. There's a lot, of either fish and plants and things in my house, um, so it's just sort of that sort of comfort of being in some way involved in nature. I think yeah. for me,
0: oh wonderful! Thank you so much for sharing that. Are there any final messages that you feel like you haven't express that you would like to
1: no not really i would just say just you know keep trying your best and try not to take all the responsibility of the world try not to feel the guilt of that as much as you can just try and you know try and be positive and try and do your best
0: oh what a wonderful note to end on thank you so much so much insightful information and really eye-opening perspectives on things i'm really grateful
1: you're very welcome it's great to be here thank you
0: Thanks so much again to Scott. It was so insightful the information you shared and I'm really grateful that you came on the podcast and shared this information. If you want to find out more about what Scott does then you can follow him on Instagram at Sustainability Scott. He also has his own website and I will attach all of the links to the things that he's doing in the blog post related to this episode so go check that out if you're interested. If you have any thoughts or any questions based on this episode or about the podcast as a whole, feel free to drop me a message on Instagram at a little bit of or you can email me on a little bit of at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast and are financially in a position to do so, I would be so grateful if you would check out the coffee account for the podcast. This podcast is unfunded and not-for-profit, so all the donations go into trying to make this podcast better for you listeners. And if you can't financially support the podcast, but would still like to support in some way, I'd be really grateful if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Music, as it really does help more people find the podcast who could benefit from it. Thank you so much for listening, and I will speak to you again soon. Bye!